1: And I'm just a super nerd.
0: Welcome back to The Paleo View, episode 375, if we've done our math correctly. It's been a little interesting getting the show going this morning.
1: So <laughs> I mean, we've only, we've only been recording for an hour, and we're just starting the show. That's all. It's because
0: we love you, listeners, and we're so glad that you're here. We're also glad that this week our show is sponsored by Juve, one of our favorite biohacks. I, I don't like that word, I'm going to be honest. I
1: know. It's sort of a weird, because to me the word biohack kind of implies, I don't know, it's got the word hack in it, which I, right, I've if I use the word hack... It's like a negative connotation. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and you know, most of the things out there that are sort of like billed as a biohack are not founded in science or fact. Um, But the reason why we love Juve is because they have tons of science and we've also experienced the like predicted benefits that the science would imply we are likely to enjoy. So like that combination of like, well, look at all the science and hey, yeah, it's working for me is, you know,
0: awesome. Agreed. If you don't know about Juve, if you haven't heard us talk about it a bajillion times before, we do have an entire podcast dedicated to the health benefits of red light therapy. I highly suggest you check out. You can also view our highlight reel on juve.com slash paleo view. That's J O O V V.com slash paleo view. And while you're on the website, you can check out the different options that they have. Um, We've talked before about the build ability of the Lego like structure from the different modules that you can build up to over time so that you get a bigger surface area covered for bigger health benefits. Um, So just to recap, you can check them out at juve.com slash paleo view. But what are we
1: actually talking
0: about this week, Sarah? Uh,
1: We had a question come through um, that was to me, it was just – it it hit so many different buttons of like topic we haven't covered really thoroughly on the show, but sort of butting up against some uh, fad diet, diet myth type stuff that we have talked about extensively on the show, but from this new perspective. And I really felt that Molly's question was it just kind of like, oh, yeah, this encapsulates – so many different things that are really, really important to talk about and and bring together. So Molly has a question about PCOS. Uh, Her question reads. I just
0: want to, before you start reading Molly's question, give a shout out to Molly, who is an active and engaged follower on social media, and to encourage our other listeners that if you'd like to submit questions, engaging with us, complimenting us, Bribing us. These are great ways to get your question answered. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding No, when when Molly sent this question to me via social media, I was like, this is really great. And I would love to cover this on the podcast with Sarah because I think this is a struggle and a question that so many people have and it applies not just to PCOS but also from the idea of it is a conflict that we say you want to reduce your carbohydrate intake from the standard American diet because that highly refined processed carbohydrate is not doing anything for you nutrient wise. And then also the popularity of super low carb keto diets. And there is a place to exist in between, but that's hard for a lot of people to navigate, especially if you have health issues.
1: So Molly, love your question. Thanks for reaching out. So Molly asks, I was recently diagnosed and have been told I need to adapt to a low-carb diet due to insulin resistance. But with the research you guys have presented about the benefits of healthy carbs for the gut microbiome, I'm not sure the best route to take in figuring out a carb balance with the insulin resistance. Or if there's any research on other things I can do to help my body regulate its cycles and begin to ovulate. There is just so much information out there about PCOS, it's hard to know what is accurate and what's not. I just trust both of you guys' insight. Like I said, flattery.
0: (laughs) We'll get you everywhere. Everywhere. So I know we're going to talk a lot about um, carbs and PCOS. So let me just touch on some of the other things. Um, Hormone regulation in general has been covered on the show a lot in different lifestyle aspects. So when it comes to things like sleep and sunlight and movement and reducing... What? Stress. Stress, plastics, and other hormone-disrupting mm-hmm. chemicals from your life, cleaning products, personal care products, all of these things, while they feel overwhelming at first to take on, and Molly, I don't know where you are in your journey, but for many of our listeners, this is a gradual process that, that is over time, but um, hormones can be disrupted from many different things. So if the only thing a doctor is doing is telling you to go low-carb, um i might look around for another doctor who could help with some other lifestyle suggestions and um things like meditation or red light therapy or yoga can have a lot of beneficial benefits as well so i just want to put that out there before we um only address this so to speak from the specific carbohydrate question um because i i just think it's so important that there is so many things that specifically address hormone disruption.
1: Yeah. And that's why I sort of want to build on um, those podcast episodes that we've done before that have talked about hormone regulation in broader sort of context and hone in on one of the challenges that Molly's having is this PCOS diagnosis and the fact that her OBGYN basically told her that, um, she can try to not eat any carbs and do some yoga if she wants to get pregnant, but she'll probably have to work with a fertility specialist to have a baby, which, um, as I read that part of Molly's background, I wanted to throw things across the room, um, (laughs) for so many reasons. Um, you know, I think that, you know, PCOS is, It's actually incredibly common. Um, There's estimates that up to 6 to 10% of women of reproductive age have PCOS. And it is a uh, condition that is basically considered a genetic condition that is triggered and worsened by weight gain, obesity, and insulin resistance, triggering this like vicious cycle because. Uh, the insulin resistance itself and the weight gain itself and the obesity itself uh, exaggerates the uh, excess hormones that are being produced in PCOS. And it becomes this like too many hormones makes it really, really hard to lose weight and then gaining weight and having more insulin resistance skews the hormones even more. And so what that means is that PCOS has these like two key features And so the key features of PCOS are insulin resistance. Um, I want to also make the statement right from the get-go here is that insulin resistance doesn't have to go with obesity. So there are women that are uh, a healthy weight who have PCOS and insulin resistance. So I just kind of want to take that piece of stigma out of this equation. And then the other key feature of PCOS is hyperandrogen. Hell, I can say that word. Hyperandrogenism, which basically means uh, too many androgen hormones, um, most notably testosterone, but you can have uh, sort of like estrogen dominance as well in PCOS. You're basically, your ovaries are producing far too many hormones. And um, and these two different things um, that are sort of like the key features of PCOS are what drive all of the various symptoms. And so the symptoms sort of fall into a couple of different categories. So there's a variety of menstrual um, Cycle type symptoms, so it can be anything across the board. So basically, any abnormality. Uh, It can be amenorrhea, so loss of uh, menstrual cycle completely, no menstruation. It can be very heavy or irregular menstruation. It can be very short and light menstruation. It can be spotting in between periods. So like anything on that, like basically anything other than a average twenty eight day cycle (laughs) lasting three to five days of nothing too heavy or too crampy, anything outside of that can point to PCOS. But there are some other hallmarks. So I already sort of mentioned it's because of this increase in um, sex hormones that sort of drives a lot of the basically like obesity hormonal programming is basically what's happening. So we know that there's uh, insulin resistance as part of this. Um, But there's also some hormones, for example, that are being produced by fat cells that basically are continuing to skew metabolism and and hunger signals in such a way to promote weight gain. Um, So weight gain or resistance to weight loss, being overweight or obese are all possible symptoms, again, wanting to emphasize that um, as is generally the case with chronic illnesses. When you list all of the possible symptoms, most people don't have all of them. Like you might, you might have all of the symptoms, but chances are you'll have a subset of them. So, um, keep that in mind as you're sort of hearing these different symptoms. Um, there's some classic skin symptoms with PCOS generally, um, at having acne prone skin or very oily skin. And then there's also, um, some other things that go along, uh, some mental health, basically, symptoms. So, like, depression is fairly common in PCOS, um, and that's both tied to the insulin resistance piece and to the uh, excess sex hormone piece. Um, And then infertility is a very common feature of PCOS, and actually, often, the way that women find out that they have it is through fertility challenges. There's also... um, Uh, So basically what's called inappropriate male features, Um, some women with PCOS um, don't realize they have it until they go through a fertility challenge, but you'll find that uh, the excess testosterone basically translates to them being really exceptional athletes. So this is one of those things um, that I've noticed anecdotally in my CrossFit gym that um, there seems... There's there's a loose link, anyways, between some of our best athletes and later diagnoses of, of PCOS, and it's because that high testosterone, there are people who are putting it to use, um, but it it can, especially when it, um, when it turns on in in younger women, um, it can cause um, some features that are not considered feminine like um, developing a bit of an Adam's apple, for example, a lower voice, Um, but also I think more commonly hair in places that women don't typically grow thick hair. Um, And then on the other side of it is um, a type of alopecia. So it's a non-autoimmune alopecia. So we've talked about alopecia on the show before in the context of autoimmune disease. This type of alopecia is purely driven Uh, by testosterone metabolites. Um, So it's basically the same thing that causes premature baldness in men, but women are experiencing it. So as I mentioned- So
0: just to clarify, my understanding is that's a lot more having to do with kind of receding versus like when I think of alopecia in general, it could be anywhere on the head, right? Like it's the increased testosterone that's
1: causing- it can like cause recession yeah. on the hairline. So it can cause recession of the hairline, but it can also cause a uh, diffuse hair loss. Um so or it can cause like the bald spot at the crown of the head. And um and so women sort of experience that differently. But sort of I mean, sort of do men when they have um androgen driven hair loss, it can be a receding hairline or it can be loss from the crown of the head outwards uh, or it can be just thinning of hair so um it's it's uh because it's driven by insulin resistance which can it is a sliding scale itself and um how much insulin you're producing is related to pancreatic activity but also the content of your diet and then the sex hormone imbalances in PCOS is also another sliding scale It means that, um, different women experience the symptoms differently. And there's a lot of women walking around out there with PCOS who have no idea because the symptoms are really minor, um, you know, not impacting quality of life. And, um, and it isn't until either something happens to accelerate the symptoms or, um, you know, a testing of the symptoms, right? So like you know discovering primary infertility and then digging deeper with a fertility spe- specialist to discover PCOS that's when those women will find out that they have it um so it's definitely frustrating and um and I think what's really interesting interesting in a purely academic sense is that PCOS, in just in the last few years, has started to be recognized as a genetic condition. There have been a number of genes now that have been um, identified as being associated with PCOS. However, having those genes doesn't mean that you will get it. So in this sense, PCOS is sort of similar to autoimmune disease in the sense that there's a collection of risk genes, but it requires, in general, like an environmental Trigger And so PCOS is sort of considered one of those conditions where it is the combination of this uh, collection of genetic risk genes with uh, insulin resistance or weight gain that basically starts this vicious cycle. And then once you're in that vicious cycle, it can be very, very hard to step out of it. Um, And because of this... um, so because of two things. So one is the fact that insulin is also an immune modulator. It modulates the stress axis. It modulates thyroid function, right? Like insulin, as we've talked about on the show before, is this super hormone that really controls just about every system in the human body. But uh, so do sex hormones. Sex hormones are also um, these really important modulators of um, of all Systems really like they they are generally um, you know they're not just they're not just modulating the reproductive cycle right they're changing behavior they're changing appetite they're changing digestion um, so between those two different systems and their downstream effects having PCOS increases risk of metabolic syndrome uh, there's an increased risk of Developing type two diabetes, there's an increased risk of basically having high cholesterol, but leading to cardiovascular disease. There's an increased risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in women with with PCOS, and there's an increased risk of obstructive sleep apnea.
0: So it is. So is that correlation causation? Do we know? Because a lot of those symptoms are.
1: Yeah, it's the same. So basically, it's um, it's it. Is the systems that are being impacted by having insulin resistance and by having uh, hyperandrogenism are the systems that are being affected are, for example, your um, insulin glucose system and pancreatic function. It is your heart health uh, and vascular health. Um, is your liver health um, obstructive sleep apnea is related to um, in many people is related to obesity and inflammation that combination and so PCOS has a inflammation piece to it um, so it's it's the basically like the root things that are going on in PCOS are also causing these other conditions to develop they tend to develop over, like cardiovascular disease tends to develop over a longer time scale, for example. Um, but you'll see that PCOS and type 2 diabetes diagnoses often go hand in hand. Interesting. Yeah. I.
0: The reason I ask, and this is going to be a little bit of a sidebar tangent, is I, in my personal experience, having been someone who does not have any PCOS or fertility hormone issues, and I only realized that when I accidentally got pregnant and then had subsequent pregnancies and um, then started learning more about it, right? So I -hmm. I never had any of those issues. But every time that I would see a OBGYN, the assumption was because I was obese that I had it and that I, you know what I mean? Like Mm, they assume the... Um, that it's correlation not causation and I specifically asked you because I knew that there was also some linkage to causation and I think that there's I think that there's a lot of shame around medical conditions that can be contributed to obesity and so someone says well it's it's my fault that I have PCOS because I'm overweight well perhaps, but it's not your fault. But also it could be you have PCOS, which is causing you to gain weight and to have all these other things as well. And I think that I just bring this up because as you know, we embark upon the rest of this, I want to address the elephant in the room, which is that there are women who are not overweight, who have PCOS, Mm -hmm. there are people who are athletes who have PCOS, Mm -hmm. there's a variety of, of, you know, health conditions that come whether or not you're overweight. And when we assign shame or guilt or negativity associated with that health condition, it doesn't help solve the problem. And so, you know, I want to put it out there for those who don't have it that might have thought, oh, you can only get PCOS when you're overweight or no, it can actually be vice versa. You can gain weight because you have PCOS or you can be healthy weight, but have
1: PCOS. So, or you can be overweight or obese and have perfectly wonderful regulated hormones and healthy ovaries. Yes. Thank you. That's all. And tangent. (laughs) No, I mean, I actually think that, um, I'm really glad that you emphasize that because I've been uh, trying to indicate that as I talk about PCOS specifically, and uh, it really needed that emphasis. So, thank you for doing that. Um, so, I think it's it's because of the insulin resistance piece of PCOS. There have been for a long time a variety of studies basically showing that if you can address uh, one of one of these two pieces, right? One of these two key features either address the hormone piece, which um, it's one of the reasons why people on PCOS are put on birth control to regulate their cycles. It can help with some of the other symptoms. Or if you can uh, normalize insulin sensitivity and blood sugar regulation, it can help reduce the hormones, right, and regulate that. And so there's this uh, idea that really comes from the um, carbohydrate insulin hypothesis of obesity, which has been very thoroughly debunked, um, research. We, we really do owe a debt of gratitude to Dr. Kevin Hall and his research in, um, you know, he was seeking to, to confirm the hypothesis and instead proved that, um, that obesity is not directly tied to what your insulin is doing and that low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets do not provide any, uh, you know, specific benefit to weight loss beyond calorie restriction. And in fact, showed that in a ketogenic diet, you lose more lean muscle mass than you do in a more sort of macronutrient balanced diet, which actually reduces basal metabolic rate throughout weight loss and increases your chance of regaining the weight. So um, there have been some really great studies that have sort of shown that Low carb is not the key to regulating insulin, but there is still this, you know, thanks to Dr. Atkins, um, you know, there's this cultural, um, uh, it's a misnomer, right? But there's this, it's basically permeated diet culture that the way to lose weight is low carb, and that if you have diabetes, the solution is low carb. Meanwhile, and I I sort of want to refer people back to our um, insulin show where we really talked about insulin as a super hormone and all of the different effects that insulin has in the body that are not related to glucose metabolism by way of emphasizing the importance of avoiding very low-carbohydrate approaches. I think that's really relevant here. Um, But also, I want to emphasize that regulating insulin is not something that is only related to diet. It is also something that is actually probably more important to dial in lifestyle factors when it comes to restoring insulin sensitivity and um, reversing insulin resistance. So I want to sort of, you know, preface that bit of background knowledge as we go through the diet studies in PCOS that have looked at whether or not a low carb approach is the best way to fix pcos
0: and this is what's fascinating Mm -hmm. sorry when you're when you jump into that it would be helpful to know what is the definition of air quotation marks low carb um Mm -hmm. because the studies of one allowing let's say 120 grams of carb are going to be and that would be considered lower than standard american are going to be different than you know 10 grams of carb
1: Sure. So let's, um, let's lump, you know, keto, which would be typically under say 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates, uh, would be considered a keto study. Uh, 50 to 150 would typically be considered a low carb study. Uh, there's not too many low carb studies, but go all the way up to 150. Most of them will stay around hundred grams. Um, there's also been studies that have looked at, Mediterranean diet, right? Adding in, um, you know, higher protein, um, adding in supplementing with fiber, supplementing with olive oil. Um, you know, there's actually been, I've found this really fantastic meta-analysis. Um, and this is, this is something I think is, is really important to, to talk about. A meta-analysis is the pinnacle of, uh, scientific evidence, especially when supported by mechanistic studies, to explain a phenomenon. And what a meta-analysis does is it takes all of the studies that test a certain hypothesis, right? That that try to answer the same question, and pools the data from all of those studies so that you can tease out. A weak signal. So the, basically, the idea is to do this very sophisticated st- statistical analysis to correct for as many different factors as you can to um, really sort of definitively show whether or not there's an effect. And this is really important in all of the different, you know, diet and lifestyle factors as they relate to chronic illness. Meta analyses are much much more important to look at than any individual diet study because they're looking at the average of all the diet studies. And when a meta-analysis is conducted, there is typically inclusion and exclusion criteria. So there is some bar that has to be met for a study's data to be added to that pool that they're going to then do this really uh, you know, awesome statistical analysis on. And this is something that's very unusual in meta-analyses. So in meta-analyses, you'll see studies that will say, okay, we've looked at, you know, all of the studies on the impact of olive oil and cardiovascular disease risk. We took, uh, you know, data from 70 studies and we pooled, you know, we were able to pool together so that our sample size, instead of being a couple thousand, like each individual study, now we're looking at the data from 100,000 people or 300,000 people, right? It it just, it way ups the sample size so that the power of the statistical tests is much, much higher. And you end up with a result that is um, much, 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 much less uh, likely to be a sampling situation, which is one of the challenges with any given study which is why scientific consensus is such an important thing to seek so when i'm reading through scientific literature i'm not looking for the one study that supports what i'm saying because that's bad science that's pseudoscience that's the kind of thing that drives me crazy when i see that on the internet i'm looking for the big picture what does all of the? what is the average result of all of these studies what what is the picture that they're trying to present and when you see that one study. That doesn't agree with the rest it's not because it's a bad study i mean sometimes it is but usually there's a like a really interesting difference in how they set things up like to me when when data from different studies doesn't agree it's a wonderful opportunity to understand more details of the system so that's where context and nuance becomes really important sometimes it's also because of statistical sampling so the the p-value um, that we put all this, you know, it's it's called statistical significance. It's called a p-value. It's the result of a t-test. The p-value represents the probability that the difference between two numbers, two groups, two averages, is uh, due to chance. Because when you're taking uh, samples of a population, there's always the chance that you might, you know, just randomly this time pick all of the people who have really – low cardiovascular disease risk and happen to eat a lot of olive oil. And uh, in this other study, you got a more average representation of the entire population. And so the p-value recognizes that if you can't measure every single person, which you can't in any of these tests, you need a way to be able to express the chance that a difference you're seeing between two measurements is real versus due to that unlikely event that you happened to sample a not particularly representative group. So all of that to sort of explain why this particular meta-analysis looking at diet studies and their impact on PCOS uh, symptoms as well as key features is so fascinating, because this meta-analysis found uh, 28 studies that were diet interventions for PCOS. And they said that 22 of those studies had such poor study design that they could not be included. That is incredibly unusual in diet meta-analyses. There's always some studies that aren't included because there wasn't an adequate control group or uh, there wasn't... um, there wasn't a quantitative measure, right? Like if your measurements are how do you feel? That's that's really um, it's interesting. If you're trying to emphasize the reason why some particular question should be studied in greater depth, but it's not really proof by itself because it's so subject to bias. Um, and what they actually discovered that that was, there was, they only were able to pull the data from six studies because these other 22 of them had, you know, like, you know, some of them had, um, diets being personalized throughout the study rather than this diet for this group, this diet for this group. Some of them had no, um, no comparison point, So no comparison diet or no comparison time point. Um, it, um, Really, actually emphasizes the weakness of the data looking at diet intervention for PCOS, um, and so I th- I, I really want to emphasize that this is an unusual situation when looking at nutritional sciences research studies. But they were still able to pool this, you know, pool these six studies. And six studies is generally enough for a meta-analysis for the actual statistics that they're doing. And they were able to show that there were some subtle differences between the different intervention diets. So um, the things that they were able to show, they they were able to look at a Mediterranean-style diet with basically olive oil supplement, so monounsaturated fat-enriched diet. They were able to look at uh, the effect of a low glycemic index diet, so that's picking foods based on their impact on uh, blood sugar. They were actually able to look at a high-carbohydrate diet. Um, they were able to look at a low-carbohydrate diet. That's in the 50 to 100 grams range because the one keto study that has been done was n- did not meet the inclusion criteria, but I I will talk about that study as well. And they were also able to look at a high-protein diet. So what they were able to show was... The Mediterranean style diet resulted in greater weight loss. That there was improved menstrual regularity with a low glycemic index diet. That the free androgen index, which is a measurement of um, the hormonal dysregulation in PCOS, was actually best under a high carbohydrate diet. Um, Insulin resistance was um, better, uh, you know, improved under a both either a low-carbohydrate or a low-glycemic-index diet. Uh, the best quality-of-life scores came from a low-glycemic-index diet, but the best um, what does that mental mean? health scores. So quality-of-life quali- quality um, is a – it's usually measured by surveys, and it usually looks at a variety of different measurements. So it's like, how energetic do you feel? How well are you sleeping? Um, mm. It will look at – right, so it, it's a – broad measurement of basically... Like, does it do
0: you any good to have this one symptom disappear if you had all these other symptoms?
1: Right. So it tries to, like, average out... It basically tries to reflect your experience as opposed to overly focusing on one measurement. Um, And by itself, again, it's sort of weak data, but in the context of looking at a bunch of other measurements, it's sort of interesting. Um, and then mental health scores were uh, best improved with a high protein diet, so improved depression and self esteem. So, basically, oh, like all of the different dietary inter- interventions that were tested in rigorous, well-designed studies showed benefits to some piece of PCOS. But here's where this meta-analysis like rocked my world, and I was like, oh, you're my favorite study now. Because when you have those large data sets, you're able to start, you know, hold this one thing steady, now test, hold a different thing steady, now test, right? So this is how this very rigorous statistical analysis goes. And it's how you separate out the effect of one thing versus another. And what they were able to show was that the the mechanism behind the improvement of PCOS the dietary composition actually didn't matter. What mattered was the absolute weight loss. So when women lost weight, all of the different things going on with PCOS were improved. And if they didn't lose as much, there wasn't as much of an improvement. And that is a really important thing because what it does is it actually de-emphasizes the importance of uh, you know, weight loss, or rather it de-emphasizes the importance of Insulin resistance compared to weight loss um, for not just the symptoms of PCOS, but things like exactly how high your hormones are. And when it comes to weight loss, then a moderate carbohydrate diet, a higher protein diet, a higher fiber diet, right? Lots of fruits and vegetables um, sets you up for healthy, sustainable weight loss um, that is more easily maintainable. So now we, we switch the whole conversation away from, you know, what's, what's the trick to regulating my insulin to improve my symptoms to, um, you know, in these studies, what they showed was that normalizing weight, um, and again, acknowledging that there are women who are not overweight to start with that, that, um, that type of dietary strategy is more powerful than what the actual diet composition is. So it really emphasizes it's far more important to eat a healthy diet, and, uh, and I'll get into some of the lifestyle factors as well, um, than it is to manipulate macros to achieve some kind of magical insulin level. Now, I want to specifically pull out this keto study because it's one of the things that... I've seen for a while and I've been meaning to research, I mean, I think ever since we did that talk on sex hormones together at AHS in 2015, I think it was, Stacey, it was a while ago, feels uh, like a long time ago, 2014?
0: Let's just say we were a lot younger, mm-hmm. yeah, no,
1: I think you're right, I think it was 2014, I think it was five years yeah. ago, um, in Berkeley, right? Yeah, um, we can. We can. I think that talk is on YouTube. We can link to it in the show notes. Just
0: fair warning: I had two hours of sleep, and I'm a little mm. like it's not my favorite version of myself. Just letting you know. You had the
1: travel day from
0: it was it was the underworld. Not a good fire situation. Yeah, no, and it
1: was terrible. I I remember being
0: delirious the next day. Like that's how tired I was. So yeah. Yeah. It was, it was not a good day. Sarah did great. Just focus on her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, but one of the things that came up was like, what about the keto for PCOS? So there has been one study that, uh, tested keto for PCOS. Uh, now, We've also talked um, on the show about adverse reactions to keto. Our longtime listeners will know that neither of us uh, are fans of keto. Um, I actually, of, outside of its therapeutic use for neurological and neurodegenerative disease, do not recommend it for anyone. Um, but uh, But this was sort of this buzz thing at the time of, you know, people, uh, you know, physicians putting their PCOS patients on keto and, you know, magic. Um, The study uh, was published in 2005. No follow-up studies have ever been published. Uh, It recruited 11 women. Six of them dropped out of the study. When you see that kind of level of um, people dropping out of a study, um, it often is because of side effects of the intervention and or lack of effect. And with keto studies, we tend to see because the adverse reaction rates are so high. there's like really that the the, the um, cost benefit analysis of keto, unless you have you know epilepsy that doesn't respond to CBD oil or um, anticonvulsants right unless you have uh, a neurodegenerative disease right there's there is some applications of keto uh, that also needs to be done under medical supervision because of the high risk of uh, health problems caused by keto but the the thing here that's relevant we can, put links in the show notes to um, my pretty epic blog post summarizing the keto research and and all of the adverse reactions to it and why they happen, but also to the previous podcast where we've talked about that. So six out of 11 women dropping out is sort of predictable from a keto study because keto causes all of these other issues, including a lot of the same um, menstruation symptoms that are a hallmark of PCOS. So there have been studies in women on keto where seven out of nine women on this one long-term study all lost their periods and it didn't come back for all of them once they returned to a normal diet. Like it's, it's, uh, a diet that overtly manipulates sex hormones because of its role, um, in, uh, what insulin is doing and not to the benefit for most people, So out of the five that finished the study, this was the major measurement of the study. And this actually is uh, relatively common that PCOS studies are actually fertility studies. Um, So two out of the five women got pregnant. Um, That is not a magical number. Um, Those are very similar, right, 40% which it's sort of hard to say it's 40% when your sample size is so low, 40% pregnancy can be found in a lot of different interventions for, um, for PCOS. And these were women who had not undergone IVF. So this is an excellent opportunity to talk about red light and near infrared light therapy, um, I, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before because one of the benefits of red and near infrared light therapy is it increases ATP production in our cells, which improves cellular health. And that has a lot of downstream effects. It has actually been used in fertility studies, um, dominantly infertility problems related to PCOS. And uh, you know, I want to, I want to mention this data not by way of saying uh, juve red light therapy is uh, like the magic thing that is going to uh, restore fertility in, PC- in PCOS, but rather to show you how um, how these types of pregnancy rates can be achieved in a variety of different studies, manipulating a variety of different factors. So there was a study out, uh, that came out of Japan, uh, there was a little over 300 women in the study, and they were all women with primary infertility that had failed IVF treatments, um, predominantly PCOS. And they did uh, what's called photobiomodulation, which is what Juve is is delivering, uh, but only at 830 nanometers. So Juve delivers two different um, wavelengths. Uh, 650, I believe, and 810, if I remember correctly. So that 830 and 810 are very close together. You would expect those two wavelengths to have fairly similar effects. And just doing that near-infrared light therapy, about 20% of the women got pregnant. Um, So that is, um, again, by no means a magic cure-all. There was still a fairly high miscarriage rate in this study, um, upwards of 50%, um, which also is relatively common in these sort of simplistic, uh, PCOS, uh, and infertility studies where just one, you know, one drug is given or, or one, uh, uh, treatment is given. So I don't want to, again, sort of say that if you're challenged with PCOS, that, that juve is going to be the magic thing that is going to allow you to get pregnant and have a baby. But at the same time, um, there have been other me- more mechanistic studies done in animals with, uh, actually, red and near infrared wavelengths, showing that it's really an effect of the near infrared wavelengths, similar to what Juve uh, provides, that actually shows um, improvement in um, in fertility uh, through follicular genesis, which basically means through the production of a egg from the ovary, and that's actually like really cool to see that information. There's the the studies behind this. Unlike some of the other things that we've talked about in relation to Juve red light therapy, where there's a huge amount of research and you can really say, like, this is the key energy deposition and, you know, here's here's your protocol. This is not at that level in terms of scientific evidence yet, but it is very compelling in terms of um, the impact of improving cellular health and how that can translate to regulating hormones and improving ovary health. So not not to present it as a cure-all, but that's really exciting research and combined, I mean, nobody has done this study yet of combining uh, something like a, I would go sort of nutrient dense, balanced macronutrient for, on the higher side of protein, lots of vegetables, paleo inspired diet. Um, you know, the type of thing that we would just basically call a healthy diet on this show, um, with lifestyle factors and potentially, you know, throwing in some red light looks like it could potentially be some extra special sauce in, in this whole formula, but there's actually no compelling reason to be doing a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet approach for regulating, uh, hormones or reducing insulin resistance. Uh, insulin resistance in PCOS. The, the The scientific study, basically, when you look at it as a whole, if you look at the f- the field as a whole, basically points to a healthy diet is the way to go, um, and lifestyle is actually really important. I feel like I mentioned that at the beginning, so we've yeah. come full circle. We have. Um, you know, there's some really interesting science showing that our insulin sensitivity is far more closely tied to our activity levels, how much sleep we're getting and our stress levels than anything to do with our diet. And I feel like this is not adequately addressed by, uh, you know, I had gestational diabetes in my first pregnancy long before I learned about paleo and I was not told to get more sleep or to go for a walk every day um, or to actively manage my stress. Like I was told to measure my carbohydrates and test my blood sugar. Um, I think that this is something that needs to be incorporated into diabetes management. And the science backs that statement up. Um, there was actually a study published a couple of years ago um, that looked at people with diagnosed insulin resistance, so like pre diabetes followed them for a year, and measured how many of them developed diabetes by the end of that year. And uh, people who got 30 minutes less sleep on weeknights only, so that's like seven and a half hours sleep on weeknights compared to eight, didn't matter if whether or not they slept in on the weekend, had a 38% higher chance of developing type 2 diabetes in that year, which is a phenomenal statistics. There have been studies that showing just a single night of lost sleep basically makes you as insulin resistant as if you had diabetes. It's just that you can recover from it whereas diabetes like it's not as magical a recovery to just sleep in a couple of days. Um there have been studies that have done partial sleep deprivation so that depending on the study they would either restrict people to three, four, five, or six hours for two, three, four, or five nights. There's some variety in there in terms of how they set up those studies. Uh, A few nights in a row of partial sleep also causes insulin resistance that if you went into the doctor that morning for a fasting insulin, they would come back and be like, "Uh, you look like you have diabetes. Like It is that important to get enough sleep for regulating our insulin sensitivity and our blood sugar levels um, stress causes insulin resistance, um, and, uh, insulin resistance and diabetes are very closely tied with unmanaged chronic stress and activity is one of the best things we can do to restore insulin sensitivity. And it doesn't have to be right. It's not about like going out for a, you know, marathon training session. It's literally just avoiding being sedentary and adding in, 150 minutes a week of moderately intense activity. So that would be going for a brisk stroll, uh, swimming. Um, it could be a workout at the gym, but it could, it could be a, you know, anything that's going to, um, engage muscles basically. Um, that by itself has a tremendously huge correlation with a, a causation, right? It's not just a correlation. It literally changes, The uh, how the insulin receptor in cells is working to get your heart rate going and use your muscles and, you know, get your blood flowing. Um, That changes, that has an immediate effect and a long term effect on insulin sensitivity. So, those three lifestyle factors are so ridiculously important for normalizing insulin. And they're also all independently related to obesity. We know that stress by itself can cause hormone dysregulation, Uh, that can look a lot like PCOS. Um, so we, we, we have this like multiple lines, direct lines. If it was, uh, one of those like creepy serial killer movies. And I had like a map with all the, like the different pins in it with all the like red string in between, you would see all of these red strings going between like what's going on in PCOS and lifestyle. Like it's a much stronger link than any of the diet stuff. Like diet's still important and saying that low carb or keto is not going to fix you is different than saying, eat all the carbs. Um, But I think it's really important to emphasize that regulating insulin is um, not something that we can accomplish without addressing the lifestyle inputs to insulin regulation. And that, Addressing the lifestyle inputs is actually going to give us much better bang for our buck than anything to do with diet.
0: I think for me, you know, it's interesting. I think Molly was spot on in identifying and knowing that gut health ties into this Mm -hmm. when she originally asked her question. Um, And so, Molly. It's basically anything that we've said in other shows.
1: (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Just listen to all of our, just listen to all 374 episodes and this one. Every time I
0: get a comment that someone says to me, I know you're going to apologize, but I just want to let you know, I've been listening to old shows and love them. Like (laughs) facepalm.
1: You know what? I think that people who binge listen to all of our old old shows come to the new ones and appreciate how settled into our show we are now.
0: Perhaps. Um, or perhaps they're going backwards. And so Ooh. it doesn't bother them as much. You know what I mean? Because they're used mm-hmm. to us. And so they're they're forgiving of whatever it is that we did in our past. Who knows? But yeah. anyway, um, shout out to Molly for understanding and, and kind of following her instincts on in this one. Like I said, I would seek out a medical professional who... Um, was more well-rounded in understanding how these lifestyle factors will also play in to guide you in a way other than, you know, a prescribed mechanism that isn't supported by the science. Um, and to work on your health in general, because this is not, as we've shown, just about, you know, eating lower carbs to solve it. I actually have a good friend of mine actually I have two friends who has, uh, PCOS. Neither one of them are obese and, um, just going paleo for 30 days made one of them like normal regular carb paleo, um, get back on her cycle after she hadn't had it for 14 mm-hmm. months. Um, so that's, that's a pretty incredible story that most people won't experience. And I, the other one struggled for a lot longer and she worked with a functional medical doctor and, um, holistic practitioners like, um, I think she did acupuncture and she also had this like stimulation machine that she would put on when she was having pain in her ovaries that she Mm -hmm. said was a lot more beneficial than the medication that, you know, we've talked before about how NSAIDs can disrupt gut. So if you're trying to improve your gut health, coming up with ways to manage pain other than Um, taking the medication is great. Not that if you're in pain, we want you to stay in pain. That's what medicine exists for. But there are medical professionals out there who can guide you if that's what you're looking for. And I would highly recommend it just from knowing two people in my personal life who've had success um, in these alternative practices and what I've seen it do for their health. So I wish Molly and all of our listeners, because this is, we didn't say a statistic, but this is more common um Health condition than probably most people
1: realize. I think, yeah, six six to ten percent of women of reproductive age is the estimate. Wow, um, yeah, ten. I mean, ten percent is a 10, lot. Um, and that's just measuring, you know, women between the age of puberty and menopause, right? Like, that's. Um, oh, that's not even screening
0: out people who couldn't have it because they weren't.
1: Yeah. Right. Wow. Well, because it's also harder to to measure when hormones are already yeah yeah do not like you kind of measure it when your hormones are somewhat predictable um i actually want to you mentioned something about Molly's question that i think is worthwhile just taking 3 minutes to emphasize because molly's question was actually triggered by our sort of recent show on that new study um showing that a paleo diet caused wait Let me emphasize, a low-carb paleo diet uh, caused a shift in the gut microbiome that resulted in increased production of TMAO, which is a cardiovascular disease risk factor slash marker. Um, There's certainly some debate over whether or not it's a causal agent or just a indicator. Um, And The big takeaway of that show—again, we can put links in the show notes if you missed that one—is that there's a really growing body of evidence showing that we need to be careful not to go too low-carb. Root vegetables and fruits are awesome, and we actually dove into that show in terms of how carbohydrates— impact a type of microorganism in the gut called archaea specifically a genus called methanobrevibacter uh and i'm just really proud of myself for having that information in my brain and my tongue cooperating to <laughs> i was say impressed. I was like that's not right? in the show notes Where are you it's pulling not, that out of i i feel like i feel like we need to emphasize that came out of my brain guys um but you know one of the takeaways of uh of looking at the role that methanobrevibacter has in reducing TMAO is methanobrevibacter really like a higher starch intake. That is the food that we eat that they love and that they are a cooperative species with bifidobacterium. So one of the things that had happened in that study was a they didn't look at methanobrevibacter, but they did show a reduction in bifidobacterium and Roseburia. Um, and an increase in a TMAO producing uh, genus called Hungatella. And uh, it really was a compelling study for like these people were eating tons of vegetables. They were getting 27, 29 grams of fiber a day, which if I was just looking at that on paper, I'd say, well, they're getting enough fiber. And I would kind of just give the little check mark. Um, and what the study showed was when all of that fiber is coming from non-starchy vegetables and there's not much starchy vegetables or fruit in the diet, that that still results in a undesirable shift in the gut microbiome. And so it, it really, um, really emphasizes the importance of, uh, we'll call it a moderate carb approach. Can we call it moderate carb? Um, you know, balanced macronutrients and, I know that the word moderation is also sort of for many people, for me, it is um, in many ways a negative word because I feel like everything in moderation is an excuse that uh, many people use to eat whatever they want. But what this study really emphasized was the dangers of a too low carbohydrate approach. And that was those people were consuming just shy of about hundred grams of total carbohydrates a day. So looking at a more, you know, if you start eating, if you eat some sweet potato once in a while or green plantain or cassava or a couple pieces of fruit a day, all things that are independently beneficial for the gut microbiome, you're going to end up more in the 200 to 300 grams of carbohydrate range, which is very consistent with hunter-gatherers. It's kind of what average carbohydrate consumption was before the rise in a chronic illness way back in the days when our carbohydrates mostly came from whole food sources, and um, and it's relevant because there is a link between the gut microbiome and PCOS. How causal it is is not really known because the shifts in the gut microbiome that are, are happening in PCOS are very much the same shifts that are happening in obesity. And it could be that it is hormone environment causes a shift in gut microbiome, which then it feeds into the easy weight gain that is... Um, again, not ubiquitous with PCOS, but considered a fairly common negative uh, cycle. And there have have been some studies um, showing that women with PCOS have lower microbial diversity. That is the number one feature of a healthy gut. And the way we get microbial diversity is with diversity of vegetables, including starches, including fruit, including mushrooms. Mushrooms get like special stars beside them, uh, including seafood and olive oil, um, and nutrient density. So our, our gut bacteria are also really sensitive to our nutrient status. If we're short on a nutrient, especially things like vitamin D, vitamin A, and zinc, we tend to lose microbial diversity. So there is, there is still a compelling reason to be adopting a nutrient-focused paleo diet with PCOS. And that, that is not particularly low-carb, but more balanced macros. And that is because that is an optimal diet for the gut microbiome. And there are at least some mouse studies. We don't have this in, in humans yet, but some mouse studies looking at fecal microbiota transplant for PCOS and showing that uh, restoring a healthy gut microbiome in PCOS can actually protect against the reproductive and metabolic problems, which basically means all of the symptoms that are actually meaningful for PCOS. So, that again, right, it's we're on the cusp of understanding PCOS and its uh, link to our environment in much more detail, but there is enough information there to put together a comprehensive and holistic a template that would include a nutrient-focused, high vegetable consumption, right, gut microbiome, healthy diet, uh, dialing in sleep, stress, and activity, and then potentially including something like, well, I would definitely recommend functional medicine practitioners, um, you know, help to dig deeper to look at root causes. Um, But I also think, not just because Juva is our sponsor for this show, but I think that these science-backed, Again, we're not going to use the word biohack. Do we have a substitute word for this, Stacey?
0: I promise to think of a better one <laughs> next time. But uh, I think I think lifestyle activities is I mean, to me, making junk. sure that you're adding things like sleep and uh-huh. sunlight is just as important as finding the additional things that you can add, like juve red light therapy, um, or, you know, going out of your way, even if you're tired and don't want to deal with it to going to a movement activity, whatever that might be for you. Um, so yeah, to I me, want to
1: emphasize juve is not at the exclusion of those other things.
0: Right. And what that's what I mean is like, I think of it as part of that, right? Like that's mm-hmm. a, that's a solution just the same way that the other things are. And you can't, skip all the others and just do red light therapy um but it could be a really cool addition to all of the other things exactly yeah so i will i will try to think of something clever but honestly that's not our thing here like we're (laughs) we're not very good at the lexicon like when when we've talked about replacing the word paleo the best we could come up with is uh, nutrient dense, anti-inflammatory. <laughs> like by the yeah, time we get to have it, doesn't even a good acronym. No, I know we got to yeah. we've got to do better about that. Um, but I do want to remind people that if you are interested in checking out more about Juve, our sponsor for this show, um, and we specifically. Love working with them because they are effective and because they do have research backed by, Cheyenne, by, by, uh, by <laughs> science to, to support the show. You can go to j slash paleo view and there is a lot of information on that website about um, red light therapy and why theirs in particular is
1: the one that we both use and recommend. So thanks for listening keep those questions coming. And as always, we appreciate your reviews on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, as well as sharing the podcast with your friends and family who you think might also be interested in listening. And we'll be back next week. Especially because evidently
0: 10% up to 10% of the population has this condition, so let's share this
1: information with them.
0: I'm going to do some everyone. quick.
1: I'm going to do some quick math as to how many people should be listening.
0: <laughs> More than 12. We'll Definitely. be back again next week.
1: Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite Paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites, or by donating through PayPal. I have
0: not had the best week either. Um, It's just been like thing after thing for me, Mm -hmm. not technology related though. And one of the things is I'm going on this California trip and there's a freaking dress code. I don't even want to talk about it. And one one of the dress codes is that for one of the cocktail events, they've requested everybody wear pink, orange, or red. And I think it's because they want a sunset picture. But I don't own pink orange or red are you kidding me can I wear black or navy is that a possibility (laughs) anyway I've been looking (laughs) so I got this dress that was pink orange and red and it's leopard print and it I don't know why but for me like if it's a bold print like leopard somehow I'm okay with color versus like if it were just Mm -hmm. a pink dress like I don't know that makes it better in my mind if it's funky and I ordered it in plenty of time And there was a shipping delay. It sat in Nevada for four days and now it's not gonna arrive until Tuesday. Well guess what? I arrive home on Wednesday. Like giving it to me on Tuesday is not gonna be not doing me any good. So Matt is like sending me pictures from the store. What about this? What about this? Oh my god,
1: you have the best husband. I know.